we haven't uh, uh, talked much about the victims, right? It seems important because um, the injustice of the system kind of naturally generates a uh, a compassion, a sympathy for the prisoners, and, and that's beautiful. Um, <clears throat> And uh, they're there for real reasons. Real people have gotten hurt. And it seems important not to forget that. And, and the victims aren't necessarily just the uh, other end of the crimes that have been committed. Uh, it's also their families. And it's also the prisoners' families. Um, <clears throat> I have a letter from, from a daughter of one of the prisoners that uh, he, she sent to him on Father's Day and he read it in group. And uh, it's a beautiful letter. It sort of has taken on its own life. It's been copied. I've seen it in halfway homes. and It, it definitely sort of voices some of the impact about having a father incarcerated. Uh, this prisoner had uh, two daughters and a wife, and he used to write on a weekly basis his wife and his oldest daughter. Not writing yet to the youngest daughter, thinking she couldn't read and write yet, um, and so she's putting him straight in his letter on a couple of things, actually. Um, and this letter actually had a lot to do with me really committing to to this path. Um, anyway, enough said about it. <clears throat> Dear Dad, Hello, Daddy. You wrote Mom and Erica. You always forget me. I can read and write. I received the B in English and computer language. I'm going to grade four. I sung at two schools in my school, too. Mom really is trying to let me go to voice lessons in art school, but it is so high. Maybe one day you can help. I asked mom, why do you go to jail so much? But she wouldn't give me no answers. She just said he had to, that's why. Daddy, that's no reason. Can you tell me what's wrong with you going in and out so much? It makes me feel pretty sad when you're gone. And sometimes you're not around on holidays like Christmas. I missed you. And when you've seen us, you was not happy to see us. He's going through the throes of addiction. You was looking mad and you did not, but there's nothing, no picture, no card, and that's sad. And the last time I seen you, you look so bad. When will you ever stay home with us for good? You never stay with us. I want you to stay with Erica, Mommy, and me. Mom said you're getting out soon. What are you going to stay? What will you wear? Will you have food? I have $12 Mom gave me. I saved it for you, Daddy. I miss you. Come out and stay out. We miss you too much. The man around this place looks spooky 
and we need you here with us. No more drugs, Daddy. I wish I could blow up the truck drugs. Come on. So many kids don't have moms or dads at my school because of drugs. We have class teaching us about guns and drugs, drugs, and they both kill, and that's not good. Please call us later. I love you, Dina, nine years old. So let's sit with that for a moment. Noticing sensations, belly, heartbeat, throat, breath. So, so there's something here that seems important about pain, right? Um, I had an inmate say the other day in the, in the class, uh, hurt people hurt people. And then his uh, apprentice uh, piped up, yeah, but healed people heal people. Mm. <laughs> it was wonderful. I'll never forget it. It said so much in a couple of words. And, and it's, for me, very useful to understand that because, um, you know, the pain that, that we don't process, that we don't feel, uh, is the pain that we lash out from, right? It's the pain that is passed on, often out of a sort of unconscious motivation that says, 
I can't bear this pain. I need somebody else to feel it with me or for me. And uh, uh, I, th- I think the Dharma uh, really uh, offers a lot to, to that phenomena. Both sides of it, right? Understanding that uh, hurt people hurt people and that heal people heal people. And the healing part is, is really our business as, as chaplains, as, as prison workers. And it seems that uh, a lot of that has, uh, is, relates, rather, to learning how to hold it. I mean, look at it. The, the active verb for being in prison is you're being held in prison. So it infers that uh, something in your container didn't work. Your anguish spilled out. And uh, since we close to uh, mental hospitals, you go to prison. Um, And so then you're held in prison. And for a lot of young people... uh, they're looking to be held and to be wanted. You get wanted by the police and held in prison. Um, So it infers that a lot of our work then has to do with rebuilding that container. And and it it relates to uh, uh, holding your horses, right? Learning how to hold your horses. But it also relates to uh, <clears throat> learning to hold yourself dear enough to care enough. And uh, we're all doing time on that one, don't we? <laughs> and it's a harder one to teach because uh, you can't convince somebody. You know, it's, it's, it's an experience you arrive at. You can't buy it. You can't sell it either. So uh, it, it, those of you, and I spoke to a few of you uh, during lunch that have family members in prison, it's very painful to sit in the helplessness of witnessing that because you cannot do it for them. Right? Phenomena of pain in this part of the universe is it's uniquely ours. And, and, and that's where I feel Buddhism can really offer a lot. Um, in, in many ways, by being patient. <laughs> um, and modeling. And uh, honoring the sentient. A lot of what goes wrong is because we've turned it around. And, and, we have mind over sentience. You know, we have our sentience serving the mind. And it's really uh, meant the other way, I, I think. Um, so, uh, therefore, it's important, uh, in my experience, for the prisoners to get in touch with the pain they've caused, as well as the pain that was 
given to them, the victims that they themselves have been in their predicament. And it's an important part of uh, of uh, the healing for them to get in touch with that. Not out of morality or, or um, some sense of how to deal with guilt, but out of... Um, Becoming responsible in finding your power so that uh, it's an embracing your faith that your freedom emerges. Not in going around it or under it or away from it. And so um, it's a, a very, very potent rehab tool for people to uh, describe uh, you know, we call it the disclosures, the importance of a disclosure. Describe the pain they have created and experienced. You know, in the violence prevention class, we do personal violence histories. Pretty amazing stories on both sides. I mean, pain felt, pain caused. And uh, it's my experience that... Um, it seems to be that that's the most effective tool to deal with what brings people back to prison more than anything, which is shame. Deeply internalized shame. And uh, there's somehow uh, uh, a dynamic that emerges with disclosing the demons, you know, naming the demons, and, and naming your victim as well, but describing what you've done that is a, a most powerful antidote for shame. Um, it has to be done in the right context. It can be done for effect, for that, any effect. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of what I think Nietzsche called amor fati, right? Love your fate. Embrace it. And your freedom emerges right through that. So I just, just wanted to uh, uh, mention that because uh, it, I was a couple of years in before uh, doing this work before I really began to understand that. And it was because of what the victims taught us. Yeah. F-A-T-E. Yeah, and my ESL gets in the way. People say, is it inside prison project or inside prison project? <laughs> I've learned it's inside. Inside prison project. question. Uh, when I first started doing prison work, um, and it's going on almost, uh, I'm going on into my seventh year, the protocol was never to ask the men about why they were in, and um, unless they bring it up themselves and wish to discuss it. 
Um, and you had just said this should be done in a proper container. Is that through the training through your program? Is that what you're speaking of at this it's, point? It's one of the, well, it figures in, in two programs, really. It figures both in the violence prevention work we do, but it figures very strongly in the restorative justice training uh, and classes. Actually, the, f the first class is about the men writing down a uh, crime impact statement and reading it out loud to each other. Now, they voluntarily sign up to do that. Actually, we have 70 on a waiting list right now. Um, and so they know ahead of time what they're getting into. It's pretty remarkable that people are lining up to do that, isn't it? Right, those are your worst stories. Right, your worst secrets. In the in the program that I was a part of, um, we had our guys um, tell their stories over the series of the of a twelve week class, and. Uh, a lot of these guys had known each other for like 25 years, and it occurred to me that most of them had never shared their stories, even though this was their family. They'd been living with these mm -hmm. people for 25 years, and they had never, there was never room or space for them to tell each other their stories of exactly what had brought them here, the crimes that had, they had committed. And um, also, a lot of them had never spoken their crimes in front of a woman, which was another mm -hmm. part of it. Mm -hmm. um, so we had um, several different sexual crimes, and that was really moving for them. Like, please, I don't know, they, they really, mm -hmm. it was a huge impact for them. I mean, it was difficult to hear, but it was really important to them and really freeing to them. Mm -hmm. Um, this past week in prison, um, someone came in and their son had been killed, shot. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, um, and they talked to me or I listened uh, about it, but there's also many of the men inside are also victims. Mm -hmm. You know, we often just think about the one-sided, but often many are in there because of the crimes that were committed to them at some point. And, and so many of, so many, I don't know that that's true. Um, a lot of the men I've talked to are lifers, mm -hmm. you know, and they can live their whole time in prison with much loss and grief, and they have no vehicle really to work through that. Right. It's, it's such a weird system, isn't it? I mean, we put all the energy in the court system, which at best does a pretty bad job, if you ask me, but at best manages the facts. But nothing addresses the wounds. So why do we choose to do that? Right? Why do we lock people up um, and don't do the healing? It's a real statement on uh, how we all do that time. <laughs>
because of that. What would you look for in, t in terms of what a person's putting forward to help give you the confidence to know that this is a good time to have the person start to talk about their history? And yeah, I wouldn't do that lightly. I wouldn't do that lightly. You, you need to have a real container for that. Um, and there are you know, certain complications with it too because some of the crimes are outside of the code, right? the prison code. Uh, uh, and in different prisons, they have different tones of seriousness around that code. You might just say what you mean by that. Uh, for example, if you've killed a child or, or abused a child, um, the code is that um, you're poisoned, you know, and, and uh, you get beat up for that by other prisoners. So you don't want to disclose the fact that that's in your past. Um, and some, some of it the same around rapes and, and uh, sexual uh, crimes. Um, so it's important to get well trained in that stuff on how to uh, create a container that can truly hold that. Uh, we do it in small groups and um, people know ahead of time what they're getting into, they get screened and oriented so that we know who we're getting in to some extent. Um, so those are some of the things I'd say around the parameter. Um, now, that said, um, once you have that established, um, there's also an eagerness to heal, you know. So, um, particularly if you've, you know, done a few groups and the word goes out. So I also don't want to make it, you know, into this big ta-da thing that takes all of this and this and that. Um, but yeah, you do need to know what you're getting into and, 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 and really uh, communicate a safe container. We had something really special happen in our Sangha. Um, I took my Leo donation basically at the outside at the same, around the same time that about eight of our guys took ordination inside. And um, part of the rite of passage in the Sangha was that each of us had to do a Dharma talk on, our, on a precept. Um, just speaking of really appropriate containers, and Sado Roshi, um, who is the head priest of the Buddha Dharma Sangha inside, has a, an elegance about him in terms of appropriateness, and um, he just has a way of really holding the space and making everybody feel safe. So two of the Dharma talks in particular, one was done by one of our Sangha members who killed his best friend. And he's been in prison 34 years. So same amount of time I've been on the planet. Um, 
the Dharma talk that he gave, that he was that the precept he was given to talk about was not taking life. And not from a place of judgment or you need to look at this, but actually very skillfully done. Um, and what was really beautiful was to watch the other guys who have known about his crime, but not necessarily the intimacies. It's very, very painful. And there were a few moments where it got intense in the room. He was talking about, you know, not taking the life of animals and different things. And one of our other Sangha members sort of said, well, yeah, but that's really different than killing somebody, you know. And it got really, really, there was a thickness in the air. Um, but somehow, Sado, really, the space was just very uh, created and safe. And somehow it just was allowed to arise and dissipate. And it was beautiful to share in the unveiling of this dark secret mm-hmm. um, that he had disclosed to just a few of us um, and just the sort of share in it, you know. So it was. It just came to my mind when you were talking about mm-hmm. it, um, how there's ways of doing it, and that was a very, very special way mm-hmm. of doing it. And that they knew coming to it that that's what they were doing. So they were prepared with themselves to to do something so big. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, r- remarkable stories emerge out of that. I remember um, getting a call from the Attorney General's office through the warden's office that there was a woman that wanted to meet with her offender who was on death row. And... Um, would I be willing to mediate it? <laughs> and um, I, it's true, I've been trained. You know, our, our restorative justice uh, director, Rochelle, uh, pulled me into that first training. So I said, uh, uh, well, let, let me think about it. But probably yes. And so... I got the name of the inmate because I was going to have to visit him first. And so I looked up his crime on the internet. You can do that these days. And I was aghast. And uh, I won't share the details of the crime, but it involved two young boys being kidnapped, raped, killed, hung, you name it. And uh, I have a boy myself that age. And uh, it took me a moment to uh, say, wow, do I want to do this? So then I spoke with the the victim, who was a 58-year-old, 55-year-old at the time, uh, Latino woman. And um, she said, well, you probably want to know why I want to do this. And I said, exactly. And she said, "Um, I just want to know what his last words were. Because I'm imagining it all the time. I want to know, did he cry for me? Did he call for my name? And she said, it sounds really strange to most people. And so I don't talk to a lot of people about it. But I feel for myself, that's what I need to do. So I said, wow, if, 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 if she can muster it like that, I better get it together here. 
So I went in and met with the inmate, and uh, that was an adventure in itself. But sat down with him and uh, pretty quickly realized he's not ready to do this. Because uh, part of the conditions for a, a dialogue like that is that the inmate uh, admits guilt up front and that his victim initiated. So we had the initiation, but we didn't get the guilt up front because he was look, hoping for appeals and all of that. So I called her and I said, mm, I don't think this is a good idea. And she wept. So I said, I'll come visit you. So I got on the plane. She was in San Diego. Met her. Um, she drove me to the place where her son was found, straight out of the airport. And we spent some time there. And went to her house. And uh, we went to all the newspaper clippings. And she shared the whole thing in detail. And... Uh, I remember on the way back in the air, airport, I saw this little pillow you could put around your neck that said "Life is Good," which, which I believe is a brand name. I had to have it. I bought it. <laughs> um, um, but I spent the weekend with her, and uh, I had with me a gift of uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe with little prayers tied around it from my lifers group because I shared the story with them. And I had asked them, I said, you know, if she wants to come see you guys instead and ask you guys the questions she would ask her offender, uh, would you guys be up for that? And I said, you know, those are going to be some candid questions and, and you would have to give candid answers. So they said yes. We'd like to do that for her. So I invited her and she came. And we sat in the room. And uh, she was nervous because, you know, a few hundred yards away was her offender. And uh, she went to every person in the group and she said, what did you do? Hmm. And uh, how did you feel doing it? And questions like that. And all these men spoke up, told the exact truth, no embellishments, and um, answered her questions. And she would say, thank you. And I have never been in a room where such horrible truth still was truth, right? And you could see this, you could see her lighten up. And uh, it was it was a remarkable thing to watch uh, because it was healing her. I mean, these horrible truths, right? As to what human beings can do to other human beings. And finally, one of the guys, actually, it was Philip, who came with me a few weeks ago, uh, said, uh, you know, "Do you want to share something positive about Charlie's life?" And she said, "Yeah, yeah, I do. You know." And so she, she, she lit up and she started talking about him. And I had to like pull her out there. She was asking me, you know, do they have phone numbers? Can I call them? And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the group sort of, without any advertisement, uh, became a bit of a clinic where that happened a number of times. 
people would come in and uh, and then guys sometimes would say, well, you know, I, I don't get to talk to anybody in my victim's family. Can I apologize to you? And that was very moving when that happened and very real and um, taught a real story about uh, just how far we can go, you know. So, um, now, did she get what she wanted? No. Uh, but she, she got some of her needs met there. You know, some of this sounds kind of heavy, and and you know what? It's not. (laughs) It's actually not. When you're in the room doing it, it's so healing and so contagious that uh, it doesn't feel heavy. It's it's sort of the, um, how do you say it? The truth is stronger than the facts. So it, 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 uh, the content actually takes the secondary seat. It's incredible when when the, when people speak the truth on that level. It, 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 they, you're healing people that you've never met and never seen. It just goes out. Keep us on track, okay? Keep us on track? Yeah. What needs to happen here? Okay. I will. This is more a technical question. Um, I think it's 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 so great what you're doing. Do you get a lot of cooperation from the administration and bringing people in and having the men participate? Depends on the administration, right? Uh, uh, last year has been very difficult. I think we operated on 65%. But, uh, yeah, it depends a lot on... uh, Oh, and then, and I know the the Buddha Dharma group suffers this too, they decided uh, they were going to transfer all these lifers. That was painful too. You talk about letting go. You know, you go through things like this with people, Right? It's hard to let go of these people and the system just moves them like furniture. It doesn't tell them when. You know, it kind of tells them where, but they can change that too. That's been rough. That you don't get to say goodbye. It's often very hard. Yeah, you don't always. You don't always. Yeah. question about this um, I can't remember what you called it where the 
the um, perpetrator can, um, meets with a victim or or another victim. I'm wondering, do do they are they are they looking for absolution when they do this? And how do you how do you you know sort of um, convey that? Or do they already know that there's really n- no absolution that's going to happen in that process? Or, or you know, there, there's, there's something that happens, yeah, telling the truth is important, but, but yet they still have to go on living with what they have done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked about self-hatred and, and, and learning to, to accept oneself and on. And how do you get, help them to accept that there is really no absolution, that this is they're going to be living with this and how to live with that. Yeah. Well, that's sort of its own absolution, isn't it? There is no absolution. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's uh, you know, I think it was Dostoevsky who wrote about uh, becoming worthy of the pain that you have been given and that you have created. And so, um, I mean, if you can't find refuge in the truth, where else can you find it? So that is its own absolution. Now, none of this is done with the goal of creating anything other than embracing that truth. You know, it's not to create forgiveness. No no such thing, right? Or... or, um, Exonerate people, uh, and and uh, the the prisoners uh, understand that. And when they talk to the board about it, uh, they they say, you know, this insight that I have gained is not to excuse myself. It is to understand. And so uh, the board is paying attention to this program. Um, and and you know uh, it's interesting too because you know in, in Western psychology there's such an emphasis on well guilt is bad and and, and you know you can don't guilt trip and all that and I believe all of that and and yet it's important not to set up situations that produce forgiveness as the goal because uh, you don't get to play God here right. It, it, it is what it is, you know. <coughs> Victims have their own motivation too to do this. Like in, in the case I just told you about, she wanted to know what their last word, what his last words were. She wasn't, you know, wanting to have a, a, a end all good story with forgiving all around. And if that's there, which it happens, that's beautiful also. It's really beautiful. But it can't be the goal. I'm curious what the prisoners said to the woman whose son had been murdered. Because I too wonder how people can do such horrible things to other people. She said thank you. 
and then went on to the next one. What I was wondering is, what did the prisoner say to her? Right. Well, they answered her question, so they described who they killed and how they killed the person in most cases. Now, understand that this was in a very unique context. I'm not saying, therefore, it is the recipe for all those type of interactions. Um, Is there something more specific you're asking? Well, did any of them talk about why they had done it? Yeah. Um, Things were said like, um, I was high, and um, I didn't yet know what my pain was all about, and um, I didn't know who I was. and in the in the personality that I was at that time, you know, there was there was justification for this. And that's you know a, a useful way to look at it actually, because um, if you look at it at, at uh, people remembering who they really are in the work. It points that finger to all the times they forgot, or let's just say we forget, right? And uh, that's a, a, a useful model for this work, uh, rather than uh, you know coming from the shame aspect, because we all forget who we are, and in some cases it has huge consequences. And all of it is said in order to facilitate the truth-telling of it. None of it is uh, to explain it or condone it. Is there any, um, I don't even want to say focus, I don't know, towards self-forgiveness? I think it goes back to sort of Mm -hmm. Mm self-love. But in some way, maybe the way I see it is that that sort of goes a little bit hand in hand sometimes. um, That to forgive oneself Mm -hmm. for whatever's happened is also a part of increasing self-love. So I don't know if you could just speak to that a little bit. Well, that, that's a broad team we both work with. I wonder if you want to say something about Wait, that. Why don't you continue there for a bit? <laughs> yeah, please. please. Here. Yeah. We're both here. Um, yeah, it's, it's very key. It's very key. Um, 
I, I think, you know, uh, what is available to do in terms of externalizing the demons is very important towards that process. Because uh, we uh, have a hard time in general relating to what keeps that uh, shame in place if it's all kept inside. And, and so, uh, as a matter of fact, the most unique characteristic of shame is to keep it inside, right? And it manifests in the body like that, right? What, what does your body do when you're ashamed? Anybody? Right. Cringe. Get smaller, right? Anybody else? Try it out. You close down. You close down. I often behave to my lowest common denominator when my my lowest manifestation is okay. Okay. I don't know, but yeah, when I experience shame I'm just like like I'm already down. I may as well just like I'm just in the pits. Right. So here I am. It's almost like you want to disappear if you could, right? But since you can't, you act even more like a fool. Yeah, yeah that, so that's even more shaming, which is, you know, while you're disappearing, you're turning beet red. You want to disappear, but you turn beet red, right? <coughs> so it, it's, you know, shame off shame and et cetera. So, so yeah, hard to, uh, you know, get real with something that wants to disappear, right? So, uh, again, the, the power of uh, speaking truth and disclosure is, is uh, useful there. But it also uh, uh, manifests on other levels. You know, a lot of the healing the Dharma offers is to really um, acknowledge uh, the truth of our experience and how it manifests through the sensations in our body, and park the story and uh, and uh, justification and uh, uh, explanation and everything that keeps us from actually feeling the cringing and the wanting to disappear and the contracting and. Uh, you know, the whole, uh, uh, what is the word for that? A repetition compulsion around that mechanism. Um, right? You unconsciously repeat it because you want to undo it, but because you don't know how, you create more suffering. So... Um, Getting real in the body is a fantastic ground for the process. And then finding ways to get creative. It can be through writing. It can be through the speaking truth thing you're talking about. Um, But externalizing it, bringing it out so you can now have a relationship with it, which you cannot if it's kept inside. Um, and then another thing that's useful around it is to intend. 
a lot of power and intention. You know, to intend, like, it, it, you know, also in, in working with forgiveness with people, you don't necessarily want to say, um, you know, in these exercises, right? Um, now you get to forgive everybody who has hurt you in your life. You know, it's, it's kind of dangerous to say that, I find. Uh, because you don't know if people are ready. And uh, um, so you, it's better to set it up as an exploration where people get to um, explore that. And, and, and if they're not ready, there's a powerful thing to do with, uh, may I be willing to forgive when I'm ready to? Can you feel that? Because that begins to draw it in. Uh, but but it also allows for the opening to it more than uh, you know you're coming from a moral stance or 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 a concept. Is that in in like an exploratory sense in perhaps like setting up a meditation or just in a conversation or? All of the above. It, can be, it can be done both ways, right? It can be part of a process and it can be part of an exercise. Uh, so it can be done both ways. But in Buddhism, there's the basic three steps of the forgiveness exercise where, you know, you, you turn to uh, those that you've heard and you ask for forgiveness. You turn to those that have heard you and you offer forgiveness. And then the hardest of all is uh, you turn towards yourself and you ask yourself to forgive yourself. Um, so it's, it's within that context. And usually the turning in and the reaching out are complementary. No? Sometimes... Um, The turning in precedes the reaching out. It's it's not unusual if you get in touch with yourself. You start to notice these things that are asking there around this your your process of healing, whether it's forgiving or other aspects of your healing, and and the um, the impulse, the need, the helpfulness of reaching out becomes more evident to you and and then and then also even in turning in sometimes there's layers to it Mm -hmm. it's like even in your meditation you know at some point you might suddenly admit to yourself you know my mind is all over the place you know, I'm really not that settled when I meditate. There's just a lot going on. And then you settle a little more and you notice, you know, and the unsettledness is incredibly self-centered. <laughs> the vast majority of it's about me. 
what I want, what I don't want, what upsets me, you know, what I'm afraid of. You know. And you know, actually in our meditation, you know, we have to forgive ourselves for being so self-centered. Mm-hmm. But it actually takes a while to get to the place to let that register. You know? how, how much is invested in the self? You know? And then you realize, but you know, I've been noticing this, or I've been experiencing it and not noticing it for so long. And, and, and so there's something about the human condition ripening the, what it takes to just be with what is, you know. And, and as Jacques's been hinting at it, it it's, it's not so much, okay, and here's the solution, you know. You do this, and then everything's fixed, called everything's forgiven. It's more like you do this, and then everything is seen for what it is. Mm -hmm. And you're really willing to stand there and be with that, or you're willing to sit there with the other person and be with that. Just like, as Jacques was saying in that incredible story about when these guys came to the place where they could just say, you know, and what a, har- a powerful agent that was, you know? Um, and how do we do that in our practice so that we can be that kind of agent, you know, for someone else, you know, whether it's... Um, being able to talk fundamentally about the human condition or whether it's being available to listen so fully. Was that woman walking around asking questions, you know, what way was she asking questions that made it an agent for healing? What way were they answering the question that allowed her to heal. What what is this mutuality that doesn't rise out of our accomplishments, but in a way rises out of our limitations? Mm -hmm. These are the powerful Dharma questions for each of us. How do we do that? How do we become such a person? whether it's shame or fear or, or, or just a habitual way of separating ourselves from what's going on. Shall we shift gears a little bit? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so ask us questions not so much about what we just talked about but think about your present work think now here's something that's been puzzling me or here's something I'd like us collectively to reflect on 
This is your big chance, Diana. Did you hear me? I said, this is your big chance. Yeah. Your big chance. Ask us questions. Looking up your questions? And while you're thinking of your questions, let me say this. <laughs> but, you, you know, some of the most helpful lessons I've had is where I put something out and the response was almost the opposite of what I thought it would be. And it would show me the assumptions I was making around this were assumptions. <laughs> yeah? Like, like, for instance, remember, so, like in doing a relaxation meditation, and then noticing certain people were becoming agitated and distressed, you know? And, and, and realizing, oh, that was not what I was assuming was going to happen. And then discovering if you've been taking certain kinds of drugs, in particular uppers, you know, when you move into your body and start to release. Uh, it doesn't go that way, it goes the other way. You get agitated. Um, So again, again, this this notion of how you know even your assumptions, even some way in which you're not reading the situation accurately, if you're open, you know, if if, if you're not trying to push an agenda, even that can turn around and be a teaching, be an opening be guidance as to how to move forward. Well, since uh, Jacques is here with the new program, one of my questions was, I've been asked by um, a number of men ab about reentry, <laughs> and specifically reentry with an emphasis on Buddhism, on uh, the precepts. <laughs> um, is there anything available? There was nothing that I know of, and then they had asked about sanghas and various parts of the state and um, to be honest I haven't placed anybody I'm not sure how that goes I don't know how mostly white sanghas feel about African American ex-felons showing up so there's a whole litany of uh, how do we handle this well currently we're not hmm. that's you know the straight answer to that question um we were talking a little bit about this in the break with some people and, and, and I was saying it would be so wonderful for church communities and temples to truly welcome people back out of prison. But that's not what's happening yet. And uh, it's complex too because I, I know of communities that have experimented with this and uh, uh, you know, of, of different uh, spiritual persuasions, and <clears throat> uh, a number of things happen. You know, uh, sometimes they're not as aware about you know the pretty complete breakdown that somebody 
has to negotiate when, when they come back out. And, and this is primarily a spiritual center, you know, which is not geared to really have resources too much around ne- dealing with all the primary needs that, that uh, are very much uh, in order for people that come out you know, on levels that we don't, that we completely take for granted. So that's that's a, a difficulty. Another one is that sometimes um, a spiritual community will project their a collective uh, need for redemption on such people <laughs> and make them into sort of the hero that holds the flag for all of our uh, successful efforts to uh, undo our mistakes. <laughs> And so then those people are uh, given a status and paraded in ways that are really not good for them. Hmm. And, uh, and so then uh, when that becomes clear, because they uh, reoffend or relapse, um, there's a big letdown. And, and not always it's understood why that happened from the community out. And it's clear, to, easy to point the finger, well, he's done it before, right? Or she's done it before. If I could say to that, at the San Francisco Zen Center, we did almost exactly that. We, we, we started a program for people who had come out of prison called Sangha X. Mm-hmm. And, and there were two charismatic charismatic, articulate guys who had been a significant part of the group inside and they came out and they said, we really want to be part of this and and we said, well, why don't we have them be the primary people in this program? You know, why, why, and and so we set it up that way and that all seemed like wonderful, right? I mean, they'll be such a wonderful role model. But what we did was we, we, we put enormous expectations upon them and we were we were utterly naive about what kind of support they needed you know it's an entirely different life from being inside and being outside you know when you're a guy and you're inside you have almost no exposure to to, to women and, and you know it's not that those desires and needs go away and then you come outside and you've got to deal with them you, you, you know, you, there's, you, you're in a social milieu, and then you come out, and then you're in another one, and the, and the the attraction to go back to your old friends, your old neighborhood, your old ways of being, you know. I mean, there was some aspect of them that didn't work, but there was also an aspect of them that did work. So we we missed all that. And um, both of them relapsed into drug use. And then we couldn't, then we still didn't get it. And we thought, well, you know, anybody can relapse, you know. This is, this is not an overnight process. We'll, we'll keep going. And we left the model in place the way we had it. All the expectations, all the pressure, all the demands stayed right with them. And then they relapsed again, and then they relapsed again, and, and then there was this 
disintegration of the organization that had been set up to do it and and, and how can we how can we be supporting people not to use when the two main people are using you know and, and all all this came up so it was really when it fell into a shambles and literally fell apart that, that we that we realized it, it just doesn't it, that's not a recipe for success you know that if, if you're going to if you're going to support someone who's coming out you've got to think of a multifaceted support network you know the, these different pieces have been put in into place you know and, we, and another thing we've done is we've had people come from prison into our community you know go to live at green gulch or live at city center and we had the same problems you know and, and now we're much more circumspect you know we're, we're much much more cautious as to what we can offer and what we can't offer you know that, that we realize that the recipe for success is quite complicated it's not just is this a sincere person and are we willing to have them you know mm -hmm. it's, it's really mm -hmm. an assessment Mm. of where they're at, what the issues are likely to be, and how do we support them to deal with them. And, and how do we keep a containment and a structure that helps them move forward. We couldn't make it work in the city center, so we thought, well, let's send the guy to Green Gulch. And, and, and it's, it's like halfway between prison and... <laughs> 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 you know, it will, it, it'll still be an enclosed environment, you know, and, and he, he signed on for it. I mean, he thought it was a good idea, too. But, but, but just the fact that he was out of prison shifted his psychology and, and different kinds of issues came up. He was acting out some aggression. He was making inappropriate advances to women, you know, and and we didn't have the tools, and he didn't have the tools to process it. And and so after about six months, uh, um, he moved out of Green Gulch. So so, we, so we've learned to be to be cautious and, and to be more thoughtful and more thorough in how to do that. Well, that was going to be a, a second question. Um, I went to a um, Christian reentry um, organization up in the Auburn area and uh, looked at one of the houses they had and spoke to the guy who is an ex-con and he runs about eight houses. And... Uh, I said, would you be willing to have a house that housed Buddhist inmates, you know, and bring in a teacher occasionally? He ha he's pretty successful because he's been inside. He spent 15 years inside and knows how to deal with the men. And so um, we're discussing this. Do you think that sounds viable um, as a place for people in Northern California to go? Or is, uh, am I being naive and even trying to set something like this up? Um, 
even the naivete would be uh, estimated by how how simple and easy you think it would be, or not. <laughs> Again, I, I would say, and I'd like to hear what Jacques would say, I, I would say to attend to the different challenges of coming back into society. You know, how are you going to make a living? How are you going to deal with the issues that come up? Does this person or do these people have a previous history with drug use? Like one of those people who came out of prison, when he was doing well, I was running this drug rehab program, and he was helping me run it and giving these extraordinary talks to the guys that were going through drug rehab. You know? Right. And, and, and so when he relapsed, I was surprised, you know? I mean, I was personally deeply moved by the sorts of things he would say which led me to underestimate the challenges he personally was going through. Yeah, and and just to say something also, it's like, you know, with the emphasis on the the spiritual aspect, it's true that in prison when you don't have to work for your paycheck and your housing and uh, deal with, you know, relationship issues, um, that um, depending on the prison, uh, there's actually more opportunity to develop spiritually. Uh, but then all of that, like Paul said, comes and revisits uh, once you get out. You know, in, with the Inside Out program and the, the lifers that are out now from this one group, our dream is at some point to have a, a building in the East Bay where we could house 10 to 15 uh, uh, former prisoners with an emphasis on lifers because some of those guys don't have family left. And it's hard to, I mean, imagine coming out after 30 years with $200 in your pocket. It's quite a time capsule. There's some good stories to tell from what guys have gone through. Um, and so, uh, and then have the building also be a place where kids could be tutored, where you have a conflict resolution zone. People could, you know, leave their guns at home and see, work it out. And, and house the inside out project. But what we decided, that if we get that far, right, we would call it new entry instead of re-entry to do some honor to the things Paul is mentioning here uh, because it's a mis- misnomer to call it re-entry and in many ways uh, you don't want people to re-enter where they came from yeah. both geographically and state of mind wise so the new entry concept would take into account that no, it doesn't just matter if you have a job, a place to stay, um, you know, in a relationship. Uh, but you have to have committed to dealing with those negative habit patterns that trip you up, no matter your academic achievements or your job skills. And so that's what, what Insight Prison Project is really focusing on because we felt that's where the lack was.
is to uh, turn those negative patterns around into you know a durable behavior that would know how to deal with it. You know, you can't end that stuff, right? Shit happens, as they say. Right? <laughs> um, but you you can. Uh, uh, learn the tools on how to show up for it. Um, and we feel that's a huge blind spot in this field right now. You know, where it isn't just your spirituality and it isn't just your job and it isn't just do you have a place, uh, but, but have you done your work before you get out? We have a, a saying that says, uh, leaving prison, dot, 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 before you get out, which both refers to the fact that it's not just a geographical fact to leave prison, but but it speaks to uh, having uh, identified, owned up to, and done the work that it takes to leave prison. <clears throat> 